Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right. Uh, we will pick up where we left off last week in Judges 3, moving our way through the book of Judges. Uh, it says, verse 1, Now these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formally known it. Namely, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded them by their fathers, the hand of Moses. So the idea of testing comes up twice, verse 1, verse 4, and it's there. The context of chapter 3. Uh, they started in chapter 1 on the right foot, making that vow to God. Remember? Big emotional, oh, we're going to follow. And they promised to stick with God. Chapter 2 showed us they didn't keep those promises at all. None of them did. God speaks to them directly through, um, uh, uh, through a recollection of what happened and a reminder of what's going to happen. So the book of Judges, we already know what's going to happen through the whole book. He's going to send them these judges that are going to come and help them turn back to the way God wants. That will last for a season. They're going to fall further and further into sin until God has to deal with them in a different way. So God mercifully is going to send judges, chapter 2, verse 16. And just, uh, so here's the thing with the judges and falling away, because I think this is one of those kind of warning books for us as believers. We all decided we wanted to follow the Lord. So what does it look like when you wake up one day and realize you're just not following the Lord and you're not doing it? How does that happen and where do we get there? In Leviticus, we know everything about what God wants from us to worship him, right? And that gets modified in the New Testament, like this is what that is now under the covenant of Jesus. In Deuteronomy, we kind of learn everything God doesn't want of us. Like here's the, here's the law and here's what happens when you do it. Here's how you administer the law. So the how to live part for a nation in Israel Totally crystal clear in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Numbers, Exodus repeats some of those things. Joshua shows that it's all true. If you just do what God says, here's the kinds of things that happen. Judges kind of shows the opposite of Joshua. What happens when you don't do it? So it ends in God, the, the last chapter, chapter two, ends with God calling them a bunch of goyim. Like, you guys are Gentiles. You know, you're not even my people anymore. And that's the end result of this whole book. Um, and, and they're just, and what makes them goyim is they live just like the world. They do everything like the world does. You could look at their day-to-day -day life and it wouldn't look any different from the Canaanites. Nothing distinctive about them. Nothing sacred, nothing holy. They just do everything the way they do them. So in these verses, it says, the nations which the Lord left. So God leaves challenges for his people. These other nations, God's going to leave them. God's the actor in that sentence. So God is intentionally leaving behind people that are going to be there. So we've seen that the Canaanites are going to be snares and they're going to be traps. Here God calls them a test. And that's kind of a, God leaves these challenges here because 
Um, he wants them to be a better person. It's impossible to see a better path unless the other path is also visible. Does that make any sense at all? Like we don't know what love is if we always experience love. It just becomes the way we live and the way we do things. We can't really see what evil is unless it's actually there to see. And so when God leaves these people behind, he's testing their hearts to some, de to some degree. The word test there in the Hebrew is nasah, and it means to prove, to improve, or to assay something, to put something to proof, to test it. So it, it's not like a school test. It is another way to translate the word nasah is adventure or trip. So when they're deciding how to follow the Lord, the Lord's going to give them adventures. And good adventures have villains. They have trials. They have things you have to go through. But at the other end of a good adventure, the hero becomes something better than they were at the beginning of the story. The intent of God in testing is that we come out the other end better than they were. And I think this was, you know, athletes get this idea. If you don't test yourself, you never get better. You never push the margin of what you're capable of. So athletes really understand that tests aren't bad. They're a pathway to better. And when God does something, it's always for good. His ways are good. So by leaving these people behind to test them, he's going to test their limits of living the way they were told to live, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, in the sight of or in the presence of people that choose not to live that way. And you think of it that way and you think, wow, our lives aren't a lot different than theirs were. We today have the same choice as they did in and amongst other people that don't live the way we live. And you talk to them and they look at you like you're from another planet, but still yet you live that way. So God gives them promises. He shows them through Joshua that if they live under those promises, he'll be there for them. He'll deliver them. He'll take care of them. And then he gives them this life or season of testing that they have to go through. Um, so, you know, the other thing I think, this idea that God tests people. Some people really struggle with that theologically. And I don't know why, but I, I never really did. So I was trying to make myself struggle with that idea to just empathize with that. I think of it like surgery. If I got something wrong with me that a surgeon can fix, like get out the knife and start cutting, right? And we think of that medical treatment as that's not an evil thing, even though you're cutting into my body, it's not an evil thing, it's actually a very, very good thing. Because the short-term test or pain is by far outweighed with the greater good that's on the other end of it. So when you think of God, and we say this like we Christians will say this, God's doing heart surgery on me pretty much means I'm going through a lot of pain right now. But I know that that pain leads to something good. And that's the kind of test that Nassau is talking about. It's a testing or an improvement of something to make it better. Um, the definition of why he's doing this, notice it says that they hadn't known any of the wars of the Canaanites. They weren't there when Joshua was leading the victories. They never saw these victories firsthand. And because they're not living the way they should, they never see the victories themselves. And I thought of like the church today, like how many years can go by in a typical Christian's life in America where you never see God at work? You never see anything happen. You never even see people get saved, right? And that we think of that when we haven't gone through the testings and the wars as a nation. It's been a long time since our nation's gone through a test. And I come from a generation that hasn't really seen those tests as a nation. So... The nation goes through a season of testing, and it's just a pattern that we see. Nothing's new under the sun. It happened thousands of years ago. It happens today. But God doesn't make everything perfect for Israel because he wants to see them improve, and you improve in the context of struggle because you get stronger. 
in the, when everything's good and nice, you actually atrophy. And, our, and especially for athletes, our muscles get worse when that happens. So if everything's going nice and fancy in your life, you might want to pray and say, Lord, I'm ready for some trials. Just don't pray too hard about that, you know? Um, so in this sense, when we let God do his thing, we let God fight for us. And remember when I'm talking about war in the Old Testament, Jesus gave us very new perspectives on war and what that looks like for us. So to be taught to know war, um, in this sense, they're supposed to be getting rid of the idols in their lives. So in every case where we've seen war or we've seen God say, I want you to drive out the Canaanites, there's usually a quick reference to get rid of the idols and get rid of the poles and the groves and get rid of all that stuff out of your communities. So when we see this idea that we have God saying no to the pagan gods and the corruption of the Canaanites, we have a people that are supposed to say no to that too, and they don't. So to face death... (laughs) And accept the possibility of dying, I think, makes us stronger as believers. And we don't have to face that possibility. I mean, realistically, you have to live in another part of the planet if you think you're going to get killed for your Christianity. But you can look at any of the kind of the the better news services right now, and there are people this week that were killed in Nigeria. There were people this week that were, you can go anywhere in the world and you can see that Christians die for their faith all over the time. Our peers in our generation are dying all over the place. So when I say testing and knowing war, we have to just put ourselves in shoes of believers around the world that are going through those kinds of tests and wars. We don't know those things. And in that sense, a lot of people look at the American church and they think we're weak. So one way to not be weak is to prepare for war like a soldier does. And if we're thinking of spiritual war, that means boot camp. It means training. And biblically, that means knowing the word of God, praying with other believers, being in community and in fellowship with other people, and worshiping together. And when you do those things, you're actually preparing yourself as though you're getting ready for something you know is coming. And I think of that, and I think of that testing that God's letting them have, and he leaves the Canaanites so that the pressure stays on, and they can learn that even under that pressure, they don't break. And Christians learn that all the time. When the kids were growing up, we read through all those like missionary books. There's a whole series on it's like a whole bookshelf of these books where you read about different missionaries. And most of those stories have kind of a, almost a formula. They go into an area, they go through horrible experiences, but by not breaking in the middle of those horrible experiences, everybody around them watches that happen and thinks that's whatever they got is real and it has power to it because they don't break when the pressure's on. And I've folded to that fear my whole life but they don't break. So I think of that, that idea of being of good cheer in the middle of those struggles. So Steph's in the book of Acts right now, Acts 23, verse 11. I'm stealing from your Bible study. Um, but the following night, the Lord stood by him, Paul, and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you've testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must bear witness in Rome. Think of what God was saying to Paul there. In Jerusalem, he had been abused, he'd been yelled at, he'd been, his life was threatened, he had a group of people trying to hide out and kill him and assassinate him, and God says, you're going to do that in Rome for me too, and he starts it off with, be of good cheer, Paul. Like, cheer up, buddy, it's going to get worse. And I just love when God's like, I know that Paul has the strength, and Paul was prepared for it. In fact, Paul, being a murderer of Christians, thinks, if this is what I got to do for my loving God, I'll do it. If I do it, then Peter doesn't have to, but Peter will too eventually. But, you know, Paul's just thinking, if that's what my end is, then that's what my end is. Bring it. Like, I don't, I'm, the Lord's given me so much that my life is the least I can give back. Think of that level of 
getting ready for war and getting tested. When we're talking biblically, we're at that level of conversation. And it's not hard for us then to think about that as believers too. We too can think about what it means to be tested, getting ready for that, prepping our minds for it. And the weapons of war that we have are the, the armor that Paul talks about. This is a guy who faced, he did get stoned. They thought he was dead. They stoned him so good. Right? And his idea is, well, the weapons we put on is the word of God, the, you know, the spirit. We have, the, the, we have righteousness and we have truth and we have purity. And we just put that armor on every day and we go for it. And that's kind of a wonderful thing. So verse 3 says, namely, uh, God lists out these enemies. He names them. Um, part of our ability to fight sin is to know what it is and name it. In verse 4 it says, to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord. At some point when you live with the world, Obeying God's commandments puts you in conflict with the world. It does. At some point, the world's just going to push and push and push until they find that point that you won't bend. And they're going to push it. Or you can be self-employed like me and you don't have to worry about that as much. God wants to know when you're pressed, will you stick to what he says or will you give in to the pressure of what the world says? That's it. And if you're not being pressured, praise the Lord. Like, thank God that you're not being tested. You have this moment when you can be in the word more, you can build your fellowship more, you can pray more, you can do those things because you're not in those moments. Verse four says, which he had commanded. And I just want to remind that like, we have folks in here, especially younger folks that are like, I just, I wish you knew what God was telling me to do. And it's like, okay, Deuteronomy tells them how they should live. They're not in doubt about what God said about how to do it. And if you're in doubt, just a very quick review of what it is God has told you to do. Uh, one, you should love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and with all your strength. So in lack of something better to do, study the Bible, be in his word, dig in. That's Deuteronomy 6.5. Deuteronomy 11 says you're supposed to walk in his ways. So you're in the word, you're in prayer, you're in fellowship, you're in food and feasts. And I, can't, I know I can't leave that out because it's in there. Um, you're supposed to be doing that. It says to hold fast to him, Deuteronomy 11.22. Holding fast means to worship him, to take and keep your Sabbath, to do your tithes and sacrifices, and to exercise jubilee as a nation. Like, we can't do that privately. I wish I could tell the people I owe money to, like, I, I'm on jubilee here. Like, I can't pay off that house this year. <laughs> Micah 6.8 starts with, we all know this one, right? He has shown you, a oh man, what is good, what is what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? It's the very beginning of that sentence is, he has shown you. So when God says, I'm going to test these people because I want to see if they'll follow what I told them, it isn't an issue of God not telling them how to live. A lot of times we're like, well, yeah, but I want more detail. What more detail do you need? You're supposed to do those things. You wake up in the morning and you say, what do I get to do? So when you're at a loss, there's a list of things you can do to follow the Lord and do those things. The rest of the time is yours for hobbies and other things, free time, right? We're never at a loss of what to do. And even when we're super stuck, God gave us the Urim and the Thummim. Like, you know, it's, you're never really stuck with God. And a lot of times that's where this fellowship helps out because individually we can feel isolated and confused very easily. Collectively, you got, just look around the room, you got at least five people that will tell you exactly what to do. They might not agree with each other, but we have lots of people that will give advice on life in a, in a room full of believers. And you can weigh all that out and you can ask people's opinions and you can get some direction. Um, God then, by these first few verses, is watching to see how you do that. And that is part of how we live out our faith. How do you go about making your decisions in that context? So these first views is that idea that God tests, 
that he leaves challenges for you, and then he wants to see if you'll follow what he said to do in the midst of all that stuff. Can you brush away the chaos and live a life that God's given you? And how, how possible is that? So when you cozy up to sw- sin and you dwell in it, or do you set yourself apart to live with an almighty God? And that's really always been the choice. It's the same choice Jesus gives, right? First five, I'll keep cruising. You think that was a detour? Just wait till we get to uh, Othniel. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Uh, the Perizzites really stick on, I think. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters and their sons and they served other gods. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherahs. So verse five, there's a pattern here. Verse five, they dwell among the Canaanites. They're just doing life with them side by side, right? Verse six, they took and gave their daughters. So the parents are part of this complicit sin that's going on. The kids aren't necessarily at sin. It's their parents agreeing to these things. And in the ancient world, parents had to agree to marriages. But here, the point there, I think, is just that the parents were on board with this. And it's a direct violation of Mosaic law. Mosaic law is Deuteronomy 7, 2. When the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee to the Canaanites, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them and make no covenant with them, nor show mercy with them. Neither shall you make marriages with them. Your daughter should not give unto their son, nor his daughter shall take their sons. You shouldn't intermarry with people that worship other gods. Bad idea. So when you do that, you are then in a place where you're breaking the Mosaic law and they served one thought words here are used like sacrificing their own kids. So when you look at the phrase, and they served, the idea is they served by giving away their children into these marriages. And in that sense that you've got this thing where it didn't matter to those families who they married. This is not an argument for racism because it has nothing to do with that. There are Canaanites that join Israel that would be perfectly good marital spouses. We know that from Rahab because we later see here married into the fold of Israel. This has everything to do with what gods they serve and that you shouldn't intermarry with people that serve other gods. You're going to have marital conflict because you make life decisions together. So the and they served there is connected with the word and. It's one thought. It's the same idea that this service and this marrying in and being married to the world is a problem. So verse 7 says they did evil, that this is equated to evil. So they dwell with them and they get okay with sin and they actually put this situation where God sees that as an evil thing, is to live side by side and intermarry with people that serve other gods. And he sees that as a major problem. So the cycle of sin that Judges is showing us, this is the first layer of sin that we kind of see, is that they're just being okay with everything the Canaanites do and they don't intermix with it, or they don't make God sacred. Verse 7, they forgot the Lord. This is a little, the more you live with evil, the more you then end up doing evil, the less you want to think about God. If you're off doing evil, you really don't want to talk about God things very much, because then you're convicted, and that hurts. And that's a testing. Like, you will get better if you get hurt by that and improve, but you will get dull to it, or you'll want less and less to do with God if you're doing things and living in sin. The truth is, I think we can be honest, most people do exactly what they enjoy doing with their life or they wouldn't do it. So when those things that they enjoy are of the world, you can see in wisdom that they generally lead to a dead end. 
but most people do them because the, the, it's easier or, or better for them, in their opinion, than, what they, than the other options that they have. This becomes a major problem when the church becomes a very stoic, boring place of legalism. And nobody wants to go to one because all they're going to do is get yelled at by people. That's not a better option than living in your sin. But when you come into a church and it's a different kind of place, it's a fellowship, it's food, it's joy, it's abundance of the Spirit. And yeah, we deal with sin too. But I'm here and I sin and you're here and you sin. And we can just talk about that at a different level than hating on people. Right? But, but people do it. So they serve the Baals and Asheroths. It doesn't say they deny God when they did this. Remember in the last chapter it said they forsook God, which is to, implies to just let go. But here they forget about God, which means they're not even thinking about him. How many people do you know in Minnesota today that just don't even think about God? They go through the days and they just don't think about it. And part of that is when you're doing what you want to do every day and live in your own life, it might be a dead-end cycle, but you're, you can do that. And it's a viable thing. And if we're going to bring people into the kingdom, we have to think about that. That that's actually running on the hamster wheel. At least you feel like your feet are moving. And that's not such a bad thing. There's a carrot there. You're going to get it someday. Maybe that's not a hamster wheel. Do you feed carrots to hamsters? Mm -hmm. Some sort of hamster attractive <laughs> food is there. It says they serve the ba Baals and Asherahs. Some of your versions might say groves. The groves are where they would have these ceremonies for the Asherahs. Um, how do they go from making vows in chapter 1s to this serving of the Baals and Asherahs? And there's this progression here that I'm fascinated with. How does that happen? How do you do that? How do you go to Bible camp when you're a teenager and make a vow to the Lord, and then next thing you know, you're 30 and you're just serving the world? And you're enslaved to it. And you're like, how did I get here? What, what happened? Right? So notice the progression that says they dwelt, they did, they forgot, and then they served. That's a progression. It moves in order. And that's something that we can learn from. So it's the same thing that, about the trap that we saw before. God invites people and gives them freedom. Traps invite people and give them slavery. And there's a, but there's still an invitation on both sides. And it's an appealing invitation on both sides. So you get what you were appealed to. Think of it this way. If you're a complainer as a human being, you know who you are. Most of your friends after 10 years will be complainers. Now you're stuck with bad friendships because all you do is complain. If you are a drinker or a druggie, I hope we don't have a lot of those here, you will be addicted to chemicals at the end of your days. But you can drink as much as you want and you'll get addicted to chemicals. It leads to a bad end, but it's appealing at the beginning. Getting good and loaded is not a horrible feeling for some people, right? If you are super greedy and you cling to money, you will be trapped by maintaining all that wealth in your old age. And you'll be enslaved to it because you got to maintain it. So those things that look good at the beginning become slavery for people. They're snares. So we serve. And we don't have God's power to resist. I'm going backwards through the thing. And we serve those passions or we serve ourselves, But we don't have the power to resist because we forgot where the power comes from. And we're doing all the world's stuff. We do those things because we forgot and we just, this is our culture. This is where we live. This is what people do. So I do those things too. And then we, and, we for, and we start doing them because we dwell amongst those things and it's hard to resist them. If you go to work and everybody's going to have a Vikings party at the end of the week, there's nothing inherently evil about a Vikings party. 
right? But that's just what everybody's doing. It's what the world's doing. It's fairly appealing. There's nothing not sinful about it immediately, right? But when you start dwelling with and doing everything that the world does, you start to forget about the things of God. And it's this progression that kind of goes. So for godly people, I think we can look at it the same way in reverse. We can choose to dwell in the house of the Lord as much as possible. But the more you dwell in the house of the Lord, the more the world says you're a bunch of Jesus freaks. It's a trade-off. We can do the things God tells us to do by helping others, serving in ministry, evangelizing. There's different parts of the body of the church. We can say, that's what I'm going to do with my life and my time. But again, when you start doing those things, you're going to have more and more conflict with people that want you doing other things. We can forget the stuff of the world by shutting it off. I was in this lady's house this week, and she had her news on, and she, was, she starts talking to this stranger walking through her house, right? And she starts saying like how horrible everything is and the world's just this thing and I don't know what to do. And she's just sitting in her living room basking in her own stress. And I couldn't help myself, you guys. I was like, you know, you could. And I tried to stop myself and then she said, what? (laughs) You could shut it off. You don't have to listen to it. And I tried to just get on and do my job and get it. But she was like, she went and sat in the room and like sat and watched the TV. Like, I'm not going to shut it off. It is possible for Christians to just forget about what the world is doing. I don't care what they're doing. Let them do it, right? And there's this idea that you can just shut it off and be ignorant of all the crud that's out there. It's cool to be innocent of things that people think is so great. Have you seen that greatest new TV show with dragons and stuff? No, what's that? Well, it's this show, and well, you wouldn't watch it. It's got nudity and swearing and killing and betrayal and adultery. Yeah, you're right. I don't know that I would watch that. Why would I spend my time on that? So we can just forget about that stuff. But the more you do that, the more isolated you get, right? It's a trade-off. And then serving, we can do what God's commanded us to do, which I've already gone through. we got plenty of stuff to do. There's lots of things to do. Jesus says the harvest is ripe, the harvesters are few, and we need people to go out and do it. So there's both ways is my point. You can serve, forget, do, and dwell for the world, or you can serve, forget, do, and dwell for Jesus. And you can pick one of those paths, but it takes some intention to do it. Um, (laughs) And if you make that decision, the amazing thing is if you do what God tells you to do, you actually fill up with life. It gets better, right? The hardest time for a Christian, I think, is when you're a new believer and you're struggling with all this stuff. When you get into it for a while and you forget and you start doing, and you start dwelling, and you start living with Christ, it actually gets easier, and you get more bold, not because you're like training yourself in boldness, but just because you have abundant joy, and you share it with people. And they look at you like you're nuts, and you're just like, I would love for you to have this joy too. Toby Mac in concert does this cool thing. He brings out a chair, and he talks like he's a southern pastor or something. It's a weird moment when he does that. But he talks about this idea that you can choose to live life at the edge of your seat and say, what do I get to do today? Lord, what do you got for me today? Or you can lean backwards and kind of, what do I have to do today? And there, it's two totally different ways of doing things. So I don't know, I'm getting that out of these verses 7 and 8. Um, check your to-do list. What are you doing tomorrow? So check your, your memory. When you get done with your day, what are the things that you forgot to do? What are the things you're forsaking that you could have done that day? What do other people see when they look at your life? Who do they see you serving with your time? And what does that look like? What does God see you doing? Dwelling, doing, forgetting, serving. What is God witness of that in you? And I hope that's convicting. It is for me. I was thinking about it all week. 
Therefore, verse 8, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel for dwelling, doing, forgetting, and serving. He gets mad about that. He sold them into the hand of Cushan Rithatheum, Rishathium, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Cushan Rithatheum eight years. A lot less than last time, right? Mesopotamia is in Iraq, Syria, so this is an invading force. Verse 8, it says, Therefore, um, they chose poorly. They were serving other gods. Now this is the therefore. The anger of the Lord was hot speaks to, or it implies the kindling of a fire. It was kindled hot is the, is the wording there. So the flame or anger that gods get had to be coaxed by the sin of the Israelites. It wasn't an immediate or rash thing. It came over time, right? And a lot of times when we think of anger, we think of our anger, which is that reactive anger. But for God, this was a brewing, kindling kind of thing. It says he sold them. That's because they're in a covenant with God. He owns them, right? They made a covenant to be serving him. So when it says he, they sell them, they can't sell themselves into slavery. God has to let them go or lease them. So the wording there is entirely accurate to the covenant that they're in. He sold them. What do you pay God if you're buying something from God? It was my question, but I didn't get anything. None of the commentators got into that. God's punishment then is much less of this immediate danger as him just letting us go. He's just borrowing them out, but they're still his children, right? This is like when a parent says to a kid, fine, if you want to go try that lifestyle, do it. Just please don't die. Like, I want you to come back at some point and you pray for your prodigal child. Uh, they dwelt with the, the wicked person and now they serve this. Uh, the title, the cushion... Uh, Rishathiam is not a name of a person, it's a title of persons. The first word, Cushan, speaks to the land of Cush, which is down in Africa. So African, uh, is kind of an African leader of Mesopotamia. And that empire would have had parts of Africa in it. And one of the Cushan people was there. And then the Rishathiam is actually uh, double wickedness, is what that means. That might be a Jewish nickname for this leader. Um, or it could be a name he gave himself. We see that in history. Ivan the Terrible, Wild Bill. We see people that give themselves negative names to you know, build their reputation in that way. Either way, Cushan uh, Rithathium is not a name that would endear you to a person. Um, it is likely a Jewish twist or where they're mocking him or calling him a name when they use that. Um, so God's saying if you want to be a nation without God, Fine, try it out, and here, be, be subservient to these other people. The word served there is abad. It means to be doing forced labor. They be, literally became slaves of these people. It's the same word as chapter 3, verse 6, and 7. So there's literary repetition. If you want to dwell, do, forget, and serve the Canaanites or those gods, then you're going to serve those gods. It's a just punishment, perfectly just mirroring of what was going on. So ultimately, if they want to serve human gods, now you get to serve humans who made those gods. And that's how that works. You sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. Um, Hosea 8.7. God doesn't even ask us to sow anything. He just asks us to harvest things. So when it comes to what God asks us to do, they're going this way and finding themselves in slavery. If you want to be a child of God, he doesn't even ask you to do the work. He just wants you to show up and help pick the crops when it's done, but we don't even have to grow them. Uh, Matthew 9, Mark 4, Luke 10, John 4, we're just supposed to show up and help with that. It's kind of a neat opportunity. Eight years of service before they cry out, 
you'd say only eight years, that's not so bad. And then you think, really? It took them eight years to figure out that they needed to cry out to God. You'd think they would get faster at doing that. Things get bad, you cry out to God. Um, but they don't. Eight years go by under slavery before they have any reaction at all. So we're, they're getting worse. So God still loves them, even in his anger. And he sends a judge, a right setter. And in verse 9, we're going to get to our first of 12 judges. Um, but think of the context for all 12 judges here. God's dealing with the people that are going after other gods. And at some point, he just says, enough. And the, the judges that he raises up are all people that just say, enough. I'm done with this evil that the world is. And I'm going to do something about it. All of them do. None of the judges, like take Samson, for example, none of them are examples of super godly people. And it's really important in judges we don't take too much of how to live our godly lives from the judges. Because the context of chapter 1, chapter 2, and the first part of chapter 3, the whole nation's gone to crap, right? So when we're in that mode, these aren't exactly the most godly people stepping up to do God's work. But they are people, at the very least, they're the, the sliver of hope in Israel that there's at least one guy, Othniel, that says enough. And God uses that one guy. In the face of everything going one way, one person steps up and God, they go the opposite way for a while. And in that, we should take some hope because we don't have to be perfect to stand for what God's word says. We really don't. God can use even imperfect people to, to release people from freedom, which made me think of Popeye for us old timers. That's all I can stands, I can't stands no more. There's a point where you've just had enough of the bully and you're just going to eat some spinach and deal with them. <laughs> all the old people are giggling. Like... Of course, in Popeye, if you ever watch, it's the most politically incorrect show ever. Like we watch it today with today's sentimentality or perspective and we're like whoa holy moly so Popeye solves all his problems by punching people <laughs> like just as a start you know so let's get to our first judge Othniel judge one um, and let me say this about Popeye I don't want to pick on him too much <laughs> coming out of World War II those cats had no problem with smacking somebody those were people that knew war. And we live in a society today where we've known no war. And we're more scared of somebody saying something bad than getting smacked in the face. Right? We used to, two generations ago, they would teach their kids, sticks and stones will break your bones. Words will never hurt you. Don't react to words. They don't do anything. Today we tell people that words are actually abuse. Well, go watch some Popeye. And... <laughs> You know, our society has changed. It has shifted away from a people that understand that sometimes conflict stops evil because evil will keep coming. So, you know, that's in, the, in this training up his Jewish people, this was a little different. Jesus came and revolutionized that thought for them, right? They were ready to fight when Jesus showed up. And he's like, I got another way for you. But it's still fighting, make no mistake about it. When you turn the other cheek, you are showing courage and strength in the middle of a conflict. It's not a peaceful moment when you have to turn the other cheek. But Jesus taught us a way that peace can be our weapon too. But it's a weapon for war. Make no mistake about it. So with that, like, respect for Popeye. <laughs> Even took him off the spinach cans, the poor guy. 
Verse 9. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, they did cry out to the Lord after eight years. So there's a spark of light here. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. That's quite a title. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. That's a capital S spirit. It is a name or a title of someone or some being. And he judged Israel, and he went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rish Atheum, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rish Atheum. And so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. That's all we get on judge number one. So let's unpack it a little bit. Israel cried out. Uh, really, the only thing God needs to go to war is for his people to cry out. If the news stresses you out, cry out to the Lord. He's just waiting for his people to do that. But that's our tool for war, and this is what gets them into war, and God sends a weapon when, he, when we do that. So I always tell my wife that whenever she's stressed about the news. Have you prayed about it? Because maybe God's calling you to prayer, and that sense of stress and drama is something you need to give right back to God. And believe that he's on his throne. A prayer for salvation. A prayer for a change of heart. Um, and then we get into Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the critics of the Bible go nuts over this sentence. So, as we do in this Bible study, we will unpack this sucker. Because the critics are really looking for a reason to pick on the Bible here. Um, but we need to, did Othniel then marry his cousin? Quick answer is no. But over the next five to ten minutes, I'm going to unpack that. No, he did not marry his cousin. That's not what's going on here. The word Othniel in the Hebrew is, um, really it is Othniel, the son of Kenaz, is the word ben or son of in there can be the same word as youngster, grandchild, actual biological son. In the Hebrew, the word ben has a lot of different terms. It could just be that he was, that was his teacher. Right, So it's the, it's the young person being mentored by that other person. Usually in the Hebrew, it means a biological son. Uh, grandchild of Kenaz, Caleb is Katan, small is Ah. So when it says Caleb's younger brother, it just says Caleb's small brother. Right, it, it, So we have to do this. Othniel then is either the direct son of Kenaz, or he's of the Kenaz, or he's a child of the Kenaz. All would be good Hebrew translations. None of them would be an issue. So Othniel, youngster of Kenaz, would be a way to say that, which makes a lot of sense. Um, if you look at Kenaz, back in Numbers 32, uh, Caleb, by the way, is the son of Jephunneh, Numbers 13.6. Jephunneh is a Kenazite, Numbers 32.12. You got those, or should I say them again? All right, so you got to follow me through this. So Caleb is a, young, Caleb is a youngster of Jephunneh, who's a Kenazite. So it's like saying Sean the American, right? Because he's from that group of people. Or even you could say Grant that Dicker's boy, right? In, in, in the translation, we do that all the time in English, right? I see people, at least when we get to family get-togethers, oh, he's a Dicker's boy. And so that's, he's part of the Dicker's clan. So you could read that and translate it that way, and there's absolutely no problem with that translation in the Hebrew. So if you're a critic and you want to find problems in the Bible, you jump on stuff like this. If you're a Bible person and you don't get too stressed about this, because stuff will be like, you spent 10 minutes on that? I'm like, yeah, because for some of us geeks, this is important. So clearly, if Othniel is the son of Kenaz and Caleb is the son of Jephunneh, they clearly have different dads. Does that make sense? Like, this isn't a dad issue. And the word brother, ah, is used 
in the, for the entire tribe of Judges in Judges 1-3. Same book, same writer. So when they use that word back in Judges 1-3, they talk about an entire tribe of people being brothers to another tribe of people. Remember that? So uh, in Judges 9-3, for another in Judges example, a whole city calls Abimelech their brother. So the use of that term in the book of Judges is very loose, is my point. And it's also, so Judges uses the word loosely. Um, another example of friends, 2 Samuel 1.26, David calls Jonathan his ah, his brother. Ah is the Hebrew word. It's not that I'm relaxing. Um, anyone who's related to or serves God becomes a brother or sister. And that's biblical in the New Testament too. Matthew 12.50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother or sister or mother. So when we use intimate family terms in the Hebrew and in the Hebrew tradition, that's often can have something to do with that. So when you take Othniel being a son of Caleb, that could mean that he, Caleb was just a mentor to him or a brother in Christ, or they were both Kenizzites. Mm -hmm. And that's all going to be perfectly okay. So Kenizzites, a super old name. If you want to go very far back, Kenaz is the grandson of Esau, making it very hard for him to be a direct father hundreds of years later. So Genesis 15, he's named as part of the uh, Abrahamic covenant. The Kenizzites were Edomites. They, went, they were children of Esau, so red, red soup people. Um, they're not listed in verse 5 of this book or in this chapter because even though they're listed in Genesis as one of the tribes that has to be driven out, we get to this chapter and we actually see the first judge coming from this tribe and they're not listed as the people that need to be driven out anymore. Why? Why are they listed in Genesis, but they're not listed here? And the answer is they joined Israel. They're one of those tribes, and Caleb's a hero of them. And the reason they point out that Caleb is a Kenesite is because it's relevant. Mm -hmm. He's actually lifting up somebody who's not from one of the 12 tribes to be a champion of Israel. And apparently when Caleb and Joshua went in, as you know, when they did the spies in the land thing, he's actually named as one of their heroes even back then. So the Kenesites joined the Israelites really early in the process. And it's kind of cool, for the writer at least, to point these things out because he's trying to say the first person God raised up was a non-Jew to help the Jewish people. That's awesome. That defies all like ethnocentric ideas about the Jewish people. So the Kenesites joined with Moses early on in Exodus 12, 38. They're still around in Numbers 11, 14. I'm saying all these, so if you want to go back and do the Bible study, you can just pause the podcast and look all these up. This is a really cool Bible study. So they accept Yahweh, they join Israel, and low marriages commence. So it's not an issue of marrying or intermarrying with people that aren't Jewish. That's not what those verses were about because the very next set of verses has a, a hero being raised up who had married into the Jewish people. If they accept Yahweh, they're part of the family. It's the same way in the Christian church today. If you call Jesus Christ your Lord, you're my brother or my sister. We might not get along very well, but we're still brothers and sisters. We're family. We'll deal with each other because at least we have that in common. So Jephunneh being mentioned as Caleb's dad they would recognize that name and they would recognize that he's a Kenesite. Jephunneh is not named in the genealogies um, because he's part of the mixed multitude. And he would have been, Jephunneh would have probably been the leader of the Kenesites when they joined the, the Israelites with Moses. 
the next generation, you've got Caleb. He gets named, he gets named as a Kenizzite. So that's why Caleb keeps popping up. It fits with the biblical narrative completely. There's not really a problem here unless you want to read that word son of with this absolutely non-Hebrew translation, which is that it only can mean a biological son. Therefore, we have a mistake because it doesn't agree with everything else. So when people do that kind of thing, that's where I get really excited. So Othniel, son of Kenizzite, Ben of the Kenizzites, uh, he's from that group of ice, uh, from that group of outsiders that he's married into, and so is Othniel. How related they are, the Bible really doesn't say, and it doesn't get into it. Why? Because it doesn't matter. So they don't get into it. So in short, option one is you got Esau, Eliphaz, and then you have Chief Kenaz back in Genesis twenty six fifteen, First Chronicles one thirty six, and he's, and so then you have the chief Kenaz being there, and then they become the Kenazites, and then that's part of it. Um, here, Othniel is the son of Kenaz, which can mean then he's a Kenazite too, right? Everybody clear on that one? If you really want the genealogies, it goes Judah, Perez, Hezron, Caleb, Elah, who has a sister, Aksah, who then they name one of their kids Kenaz, whose kid is Othniel. If you go to 1 Chronicles 4.15, that makes Caleb the great-grandfather of Othniel, right? So now you've got some generations happening there. Um, and then in that case, Kenaz would just be named after his tribe, just like we named Grant after the Grant side of my family. So that happens, happens back in the Bible. It happens even today. We do that all the time. Did you know that about Grant? We named him after my grandma. With a guy's name, of course. So, anyways, just if you get into that, this is one of those things where you say, if somebody says there are mistakes in the Bible, show me the mistake and let's do some homework on it. So it's an open invitation. That's one of the ones that I've come across. And it, frankly, if that's the only issue you find in a book this thick, that's a miraculous book. <laughs> like, that's crazy impressive. Uh, so it's not really a mistake. It's just a need for close reading which is really where most of these things land for me. So yes, I do believe the Bible is the perfectly inherent word of God. And if that's the best argument you have against it, your argument's in trouble. And my argument still sits on pretty solid ground. So they name their kids uh, for God. Othniel in the Hebrew means lion of God. Great name. And we don't even use that anymore. Othniel. Maybe we could name our dog Othniel. That would be lion of God. Um. And it makes you think, Isaiah 31, 4, For thus the Lord spoke to me, as a lion roars and a young lion over his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is summoned against them, he won't be afraid of their voice, nor will he be disturbed by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come to fight for Mount Zion and for its hill. What a beautiful thought that God sometimes unleashes a lion. And a lion can take on a lot of people with no fear. and It's a distinctive mark of a lion in the Bible. Part of what makes something a lion is they don't really get intimidated. When you threaten their young, they're, re they're ready to go at it with people. Othniel, lion of God. So he stands up, he goes up against twice wicked, and, he and God, God does the delivery service. Othniel uh, has no negative qualities mentioned, and of the 12 judges, that makes him remarkable. Most of the 12 judges, there's something mentioned about them that's not you know, particularly great, uh, except Deborah. Um, all he does say is, I'm not going to do it. 
I can take no more, enough of this stuff. And he gets up and fights. It says, the spirit of the Lord, the word is ruah. We've hit that word before. It's the breath or wind of God. It's, that word is used in the book of Genesis. The breath of God goes over the waters. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three are present in the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord as an active agent, God comes upon him and breathes. This is different from demonic possession. When God's Holy Spirit is working with people, it's a breath. It's a movement. It's, oh my gosh, did I just say that? Like there's a teamwork where God doesn't force people against their will. He takes the spirit that he's already planted in us and he moves forward. So the mind of God or the spirit of God comes upon him and Othniel's temperament then is amplified with God's will and God uses him well beyond the talent of a natural human being. Ruah, Genesis 1-2. The spirit of God didn't want to deal with humans too long. So in Genesis 6-3, God's spirit didn't want to deal with strive with humans more than 120 years. So he cut off human lifespan a little shorter. The wind that brought Noah, Genesis 6, 17, was the, the Ruah, the Spirit of God. The same Spirit that made the flood in Genesis 8, 1 is the Spirit that calmed the waters and ended the flood. So the Spirit of God can do damage and the Spirit of God can relax things. Pharaoh saw the Spirit of God in Joseph, Genesis 41, 28. Moses saw the Spirit of God in the wind, Exodus 10, 19. God's Spirit lifted the craftsmen and gave them inspiration in their artistic work in, in Exodus 28.3, 31.3. And then you're thinking, so God's Spirit with humans does amazing stuff. Like it inspires us, it moves us. Um, God fills the helpers for Moses with his holy breath. Same word, ruah, in Numbers 11.17. He was with the men preaching in the camp in Numbers 11.29. Um, remember Moses was like, hey, if they're talking about the Lord, I'm fine with that. It, because the Lord's spirit started to move amongst the people. And he was, uh, God's spirit came upon Balaam um, to bless Israel, Numbers 24. Great story. A guy trying to curse Israel can't do it because God's spirit washes on him. You don't want to. So something came over Balaam where he said, I'm not going to curse these nice, friendly people. I'm just not going to do it. And he comes into that moment with people, Joshua's courage and strength came from that same spirit, Uah, Numbers 27, 18. This is a great word study. You want to learn more about the Holy Spirit? You get to see ways that the Holy Spirit acts, how he acts, and understand something about this. So when it says the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit came upon Othniel, and it doesn't say that of all the judges. But when it says that of Othniel, think of the epic company that puts Othniel with. He is a champion in the Bible because God's spirit doesn't move with everybody. And it's not a small topic in the New Testament. Romans 8, the spirit explained as, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us, Romans 5, 5. When you become a follower of Christ, you get a new spirit. You know, I don't feel a new spirit. I feel like I'm struggling. It's because God doesn't overwhelm people. But something starts to emerge. So here's a couple questions. Do you, when you think about God, do you love God? When you think about God's law, do you love the law and think, this is a good law. I like this law. The Bible says that those things are not natural to our character. That the adoration of God and the love of his law and appreciating his word, that doesn't come out of something that we made. The Bible says that is actually the Holy Spirit giving you those things. 
So it's not a, like a demonic possession of forcefulness and imprisonment. It is much more of a friendship and a fellowship with God when we recognize that God's Holy Spirit moves with and through us, right? It's a friendship with God. And we use that language in the New Testament all over the place. We are friends with God. We are children of God. It has, it's as though a kid goes to steal from the cookie jar and he hears the voice of their, his parents saying, don't take those cookies. And the spirit of his parents is still with him. And we have the same thing with God. The spirit of God is with us because we love him. We follow his law. And when we're about to do wrong, there's some voice in us that says, don't do that. Right? And that spirit's with us. So God walks with us and his spirit comes upon Othniel. But it's not a forceful thing. It's a sweet and a precious thing. It's that memory we have of God's works in the past. Zechariah 4.6, not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God doesn't work through might and power. In fact, he has so much might and so much power, but he chooses to not do that with humans. He just sends his Holy Spirit. And that spirit is powerful, make no doubt about it, but it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to read two Bible verses. Think in your heart if these things stir your heart. Because if they do, that's not a human that just got stirred. It's a Holy Spirit in you that got stirred. Here's one. You loved me before the foundation of the world. John 17, 24. You were loved before you were even born. Is that an amazing thought? Here's another one. Does this sacrifice move you in any way, shape, or form? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Holy Spirit in us stirs our soul when we hear things like that. How beautiful that is. But the world doesn't get stirred when they hear that. The Holy Spirit helps us to do that as human beings. This is a weird discussion. Frankly, I know that given this mix of people, we may have very different views of the Holy Spirit. So I'm really trying to root this in what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. But I want to understand the Holy Spirit because that's something God's given to me as a gift. And I don't want to confuse it with other spirits. <laughs> there, it also says there are other things out there trying to get our attention. I want to know when I'm hearing from God when I'm not. So if we're all guided by the Holy Spirit, anything in us that's not self-serving is something that God's stirring in us or growing in us. Anything in us that doesn't love what the world's up to is probably the Holy Spirit telling us to love things that are holy and pure and right and true. So if you believe there's a Holy Spirit and you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, you are promised the Holy Spirit. It's Acts chapter 2. You have the Holy Spirit in you if you believe those things. Something new starts to grow in you like a baby, but not like a baby for me. So... <laughs> The Holy Spirit's super rare in the Old Testament, not rare at all in the New Testament. Like the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is our counselor who guides us through life. When Jesus took off, he left the Holy Spirit. So it's interesting that immediately after the book of Joshua, a mirror of Jesus, that what's left with the people is the Holy Spirit. And that mirror seems to continue and to judge us a little bit. It says he went out to war spiritually. That is not the same kind of thing that we do today. Um, but he is going to stand up to evil and he's going to do it. So individually, we take heed to ourselves. Exodus 19, 12, Numbers 23, 12, Deuteronomy 4, 19, 11, 16, 12, 19, 12, 30. Individually, we heed to ourselves and we do that. Nationally, they're supposed to heed to themselves. Tribally, they're supposed to heed to themselves. Follow the law. Collectively, we stick to the teaching of the word or the feeding of the sheep. Deuteronomy 4, 2, Deuteronomy 8, 3, 21, 5. Um, Ezekiel 34.10, God stops the evil shepherds from having access to food. 
right? And in John 21, 17, God reinstates Peter to start feeding them the word of God again. Peter was supposed to teach the word. And so Jesus tells him to do that. He says, feed my sheep. And when he's talking about food, he's talking about the word of God. He's supposed to do that. So a pastor doesn't tell people what to do, just like God doesn't force people to do things. A pastor does address sin. So you're doing something that's sinful and a pastor says, hey, you need, here's, I'm going to show you something in the word and I want you to think about it. People will react to that very differently. Like, who does this guy think he is? Point that out to me. Well, you know, I'm your brother and I'm doing it in love. Shepherds then hold a stick called a crook, right? Think of the use of that crook. It is both for guiding sheep with gentle nudges and it's also to whack the crap out of lions, tigers, and bears. Oh my. Like it's a weapon as much as it's something that's there. And the Bible's called a two-edged sword. It's a weapon. And it can cut both ways. So we take heed. We feed ourselves the word. There's an attentiveness that's commanded by believers that Othniel's going to be there. He prays with those people and he does it. So this is not an idea when it says he went out to war. It is an image of physical war with Othniel. We know in the New Testament that the kind of war we're supposed to get ready for and prep for starts with us knowing what God says. And then we act and do that sort of thing. So we listen carefully to what it's there. I want to read from Acts 2. I'm still back in the book of Acts. When Peter answered Jesus' call, Jesus told him to feed the sheep. He goes out and starts preaching. That is how Peter interpreted that message. And I, and I think of this and I think it's wonderful because what he preaches is really curious because he talks about warfare. And when he gets out to preach, he's talking to this collective church that's starting to form. And he says, he reminds them of King David, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says to himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. There's warfare going on here. There are enemies. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What were they cut with? The word of God. And then, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And I love that that just matched with what we were reading here. The do, serve, dwell, forget. Like, what do we do? And the answer to that question, then Peter said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins that you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's right there. Don't take my word for it. For the promise is to you and your children and all who are afar off, that includes us, as many as the Lord our God will call. Every single person that God calls gets the Holy Spirit with them. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them. I like how the writers, and lots of other words, Peter said many other things, but those are the things that stood out. Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They all get saved, they all get baptized, and then they read the word together. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. And here it is, the breaking of bread. Because eating is important. And in prayers, Acts 2 verses 34 through 42. When we go to war and we feed the sheep the word of God and we tend to ourselves in fellowship, this is, what we're doing right now is an act of spiritual warfare. It's combat. And it doesn't feel like combat because it's the way God does battle with people. But when people want to fight us, we're like, come to Bible study. 
I don't want to fight you. I want to argue with you. I don't want to argue with you. Come to Bible study. Let's enjoy life a little bit together, brother, sister. Let's do that. Versus bickering, let's just enjoy ourselves. So we tend to ourselves in fellowship. This is where we take care of ourselves. And then we love people when we leave here. And the Lord delivered. Every single time, the Lord delivers. Consistently, he delivers. With Othniel, he delivers. And his hand prevailed in a military victory, and they get freedom from this daily oppression. They get a break from being dominated that lasts. So Othniel learns to walk daily with a sweet spirit, and he learns to lead others. That's a lot from those verses, I know. But the prisoners are set free. They don't go to the pit. His food is not lacking. Isaiah 51, 14. Verse 11, then Othniel died. Othniel's not the promised savior. They're promised a savior. That person, that Messiah promised way back in Genesis, when they point out that a judge dies, they're saying, and this is not the Messiah. It's just a hint of what the Messiah is going to do for us. This is why all we need to know about Othniel, he's not the savior, but we do need to know that the spirit of God was with him. And when God is with a person, they're unstoppable. And that's something we should take from this. Uh, the notation that they die is going to be rhythmic in Judges. <laughs> it's just going to keep coming. And they died, and he died, and they died, and they all die. All of us die. Death, then, is the curse of God. So when someone dies in the Bible, it's because they are being put under the curse from the very beginning. So again, this is the meta narrative of the Bible that we got back in Genesis. It's the mark of a fallen human being is that they die. So they die, that, that phrase is in 480 times. So if you want other verses, you can look them up yourself. Um, all of them die. There's only two exceptions. Do you all know who they are? Mm-hmm. Elijah is one of them. Enoch. Enoch's the other one. They don't get to suffer the curse. God relieves them or pardons them from that curse. Verse 12. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Ah, here they go again. So the Lord strengthened Eglon. In the Hebrew, that means little calf. He, king of Moab against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek and they went and defeated Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms. That's another phrase for Jericho. And the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. So they serve him longer than last time. Last time it took him eight years to cry out to the Lord. This time it took him 18 years to cry out to the Lord. How long does it take a country to cry out to the Lord? And, how, and that seems to get longer and longer with each of these generations. So um, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's their kids that start doing it. The name Little Calf is interesting because it's kind of the opposite of Cushite, double wicked, you know, Wild Bill Hickok. This one's more like Billy the Kid, right? It's kind of a diminutive name um, that comes in here. And it's, they do evil in verse 12. Then here they serve evil in verse, verse 14. Verse 14, so the dwell, do, forget, serve, now just gets did and served. So they don't need as much coaxing from the enemy anymore. It gets, the, and again, we see in Judges, it gets easier and easier for them to fall into sin because they got sin all around them. Moab is east of the Jordan, um, though this is the same spot that they came through. Uh, Ammon is northeast of Israel. It's well established. Amalek is southeast of Israel. So when you take those three nations, Moab, Ammon, Amalek, you've just surrounded Israel. So the nations on all sides are coming in. Where do they come through? Jericho. Same route that the Israelites took, right through that same valley. Which, you should note, if they're coming through the city of Palms and Jericho and they're coming through that pass, that means that the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh are gone. So by not even mentioning them, we should take note here 
that the very first assault on Israel, those tribes are just not there. So they get all the way to Jericho before anybody starts to stop them. So we just lost two and a half tribes of Israel in those verses you just read. Just gone. And it's kind of sad how quick and fast they fell. But those were the ones that wanted land outside of God's inheritance. So served here in verse 17 uh, is in the form of regular payments. So they would work really hard and then they would pay really huge taxes to this government. So when you pay taxes, you are serving a government. Um, most people do that because they were told they had to do it um, and they, they keep doing it. At some point, those taxes can get large enough to where they're oppressive and you're pretty much just working for a government. Um, so they do that. Verse 15, But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. So compare that to verse 9. Uh, this is a literary break. It's like a chapter title. When we go from one judge to the next, you'll see that similar sentence pop up. Uh, it centers the reader on a point that here we are again. Again, God waits on prayer before he does anything. And God moves immediately when they cry out to him. So that crying out to the Lord, God doesn't then wait another two years. He moves right now. Or he's already been moving before the prayers even come up. I think that's cool. Um, again, the, the next story here is not about Ehud. Just like the last story wasn't really about Othniel. It was about the Lord God moving through Othniel. And we'll see the same thing with judge number two, Ehud. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, the little calf. Uh, he's a Benjaminite, so the first judge was from Judah. The second judge is from Benjamin. Uh, that's the same order that they were in when they got their tribes drawn. So I don't know what to make of that yet. We'll follow it along as we go. Gera is a tribal affiliation in Genesis 46, 21. Uh, there was a, a Gera who has been dead for 300 years. So this goes back to that Caleb, son of Kenaz, or Othniel, son of... Here we see Ehud, the son of Gera, and that's clearly a tribal affiliation because he's... Gera died years and years and years ago. So he's of that tribe. So again, consistent to the book of Judges, it's not a mistake when we see Othniel, the son of Caleb. It's, it doesn't work like that. Uh, it says he's left-handed. Uh, the word means, it is it Atare? Uh, not Atari, Itare in the Hebrew. So not a game console, but uh, Itare. It means that the right hand is bound. So it's a very literal phrase. So we say left-handed, they say right hand bound. So they can't do something with the right hand, which could just be that when they try to use a sword with the right hand, it doesn't quite work. Or it could be that they're not, they don't have the use of the right hand. It got cut off or something. Um, so to name somebody as a left-handed person becomes relevant in the next few verses. In the ancient world, left-handed people were seen to be not very useful. And they weren't put into armies. And this is not because, my dear left-handed wife, this is not because they were lesser human beings. It's because in the ancient world, any effective military had to march exactly the same. So if I couldn't handle a sword with my right hand and hold a shield with my left, I was useless to the person on my left. So entire units or divisions of soldiers would be put together and they had to all be right-handed because they had to all fight in unison with each other. Think of Greek phalanxes. If, those, if, if you mess that up, it creates gaps in the line or in the armor. So they didn't do it that way. In fact, this gets to be relevant later on. Uh, there's a whole unit, military unit in Judges 2016, that's left-handed. 
So the fact that the Israelites made use of the left-handed soldiers by making a whole unit out of them, not only explains why left-handed was a problem, but the fact that Israel used their left-handies and that no other nation even wanted to bother with left-handed people. They got to stay back and keep the camp. So I think this is wonderful that we kind of see this. By the way, this is still true today. When soldiers march in a parade, they all put their gun, gun on the same shoulder. So even left-handed soldiers have to act like they're right-handed when they're in a parade or something like that. So that's not, it hasn't changed today. It's not a knock against left-handed people. Um, as much as people may want to use that to attack our left-handed friends. Verse 16, now Ehud made himself a dagger, homemade dagger for us homemade weapon people. It was double-edged and a cubit in length, about a foot and a half. So that's your dagger size. This is a big dagger. This becomes relevant later in the story. He fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh, about the length of knee to hip on an average size person, a little larger than average for the ancient world. So we know that Ehud was a big guy amongst his people. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. I'm just going to read through it because it's a great story. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, keep silent. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came up to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. And then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. And then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And this is great. So graphic. This is R-rated. Even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind them and locked them. And when he had gone out, Eglon servants came back to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. This is polite, for he's probably doing his business. So they waited till they were embarrassed <laughs> and still had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and opened them, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor, but Ehud had escaped while, the de- while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Seri Sarah. Sarah. I'm just going to say it and pretend like I know what I'm saying. Um, so daggers in the ancient world did not usually have cross hilts. So one thing we got to get out of our head is that all daggers had cross hilts. In the ancient world, all the way through the Romans, most swords were a blade and then a handle at the end of the blade that you could hold on to with your bare skin. So when it says it went in past the hilt, it's not supernaturally pushing a hilt into someone's belly. It is shoving that thing all the way through. Very graphic image. Uh, This is one of the things for me that I love about the Bible. It it doesn't hesitate when it tells a story to tell it like it was, even when those details are a little more gritty than we would expect in an ancient text. So Ehud's the messenger. Obviously, uh, Israel's giving this tribute every year, these taxes, They're giving the fruits of their labor to this king. So they would come in in these big demonstrative things and show off all the things that they're offering to the king. And in doing that, it was an act of submission to the king. So this was kind of an annual thing. Are you submitting? We we see when nations stop giving tribute, the king then gets their army and they go slaughter a bunch of people. So if you don't want to be slaughtered, you 
bring your tribute every year, and that's how you do your taxes. It points out that he's a very fat man. That's a, um, in the ancient world, you don't get fat unless you live off of other people's labors. They did not have electronic home appliances. They just, people that had to work for themselves just didn't get that big. So when they say he's very fat, they're implying that he's living off of other people. And it's an important detail when you describe a one and a half foot sword going in past the hilt and out the entrails. So we're talking about this big or bigger as a person, right? That's that's a fat person by even today's standards. Um, it's interesting when we look at the enemy in the Bible that that idea of working off of other people's labors, enslaving people financially, is one of the tools of the enemy. It is why we have godly people that understand finances that go to battle in that world. And I think that's really interesting. When I, Some of my good friends, uh, university professors, were over in that business department and they saw their work as one of liberation, that if you can give people freedom financially, you're actually doing God's work in some ways. And they had a really interesting perspective on it. And I always learned a lot when I'd meet with those folks. But the oppression, the form of oppression that Eglon takes is one of financial oppression versus Pharaoh, which looked more like enslavery oppression. But this is more of a financial thing. On his right thigh is if he has a gimp right hand or he's a missing a right hand, and he's this left-handed person, if they had any sort of search before he went up to the king, they went to search the right leg because it would you'd never cross yourself to pull your weapon. I think we do that. We started doing that with guns in the Wild West or something, but in the old world, you would have your sword on the same arm that you would have stuff. Um, so that's the point that they're making with that leg, and they explain how it worked because a reader during that era wouldn't have understood, well, how did he have it on his... How did he pull it out if he wasn't? How did he even use a sword if he's left-handed? They wouldn't have gotten that. Uh, the stone images is another interesting thing in this story. In the Hebrew, that's pasil. It means carved images or quarried images. Um, this part of the world is exactly where Joshua would have set up the covenant stones right outside of Jericho. Remember when they set up the big stones? So they would have pulled these stones from a quarry that would have been here. So what's happened in the meantime as these... Uh, people have come in and conquered is they've turned that quarry into a place where they're making idols or stone images. So there's a vivid image there for the Jewish people that what used to be a place to honor God has now become a place of, of idol manufacturing. So when it says he passed the stone images, he would have been walking past their gods to do it. So Ehud came to him. Uh, that's the same word in 2 Samuel 18.33. He uses that word for a room that's over the upper gate. So in the ancient world, if you were ruling over a city, you would actually sit on top of the gate of the city so that emissaries could come up and visit your city without coming into your city. Hezekiah, one of his faults is he showed the Babylonians around. He shouldn't have done that. They, you sit at the city gate so people can't see your city and where your water comes from and everything else. So this upper room that the, the, the king would have been sitting in would have been this kind of shaded, tarped area over the top of the city gate. So he's watching all these tributes come at the gate, but they would have been below him. So when he says, I have a secret to tell you, he can't yell that from the ground up to the wall or everybody's going to hear what he says. So that secret makes it so he has to come up. Why Eglon would listen to this, I have no idea. Like if you have somebody offering you a tribute and they say, I have a secret for you, I'd say, keep your secret. But he doesn't, he's curious. So he calls him up to his cool private chamber, Aliyah in the Hebrew, it's a roof chamber. Um, the luxury of being on the roof is twofold. You are above the stink and heat of the city. 
So you don't, you're not in the middle of all the muck and stuff. When the donkeys and the horses do their business, being at ground level in a city was dirty, unclean, hot, and smelly. So getting up a story gets you the breeze and it keeps it cool. If you put a tarp over that and shade it, that was their version of air conditioning. So he's a big man with an air conditioned room and it's up and above everybody. So that cool roof is how they would have described that. When he says, I have a message from God for you, notice that just the mention of God gets this guy to stand up. Do you see that? It's like immediately after that. There's no sign of a knife. He hasn't pulled his knife yet. He's just saying God has words for you. And with the enemy, even bringing up the name of God is fighting words. So when he stands up, he's standing up to get him, right? So it's not even the use of Jehovah or Yahweh. He's just using Elohim, the genuine. So he just says, I have a message from God for you. And he says, Elohim, it's the general use of a God. So, but it's that I have a message from the God or from capital G God. He's not speaking for all these little fake gods. He's speaking for Yahweh. When Eglon hears that, it means that Israel's not submitting to his stone images anymore because he's speaking for Yahweh, this God, but he doesn't use that name. And I just think that's interesting. It, It hints at the effects of domination. When you're about entirely about the business of dominating other people, every little thing's a threat to you. And if all you're trying to do is control others, any sign of disunity becomes very dangerous and you overreact to those things. So this kind of language, the other thing is, I have a word from God from you. Actually, we have a whole book full of God's words. We could quote anything in the Bible and say, this is a word from God to you. And we could do it with total confidence because it's from the word of God. The word of God says this. As a church, growing up for me, 50 years-ish, I think we've lost our ability to talk like this as a church. God says this in these situations or these conversations. And when he does that, again, it's fighting words. This is old school prophet kind of language. And when pastors like, you know, be at their podium and shouting and yelling back in the, if you ever watch some of those old, old kind of things, and they're pointing at their audience saying, God says this to you. And we don't see that a lot in the church anymore. This God's message to you personally So the king stands up just at the mention of God's name. um, And and in that sense, Othniel, I think, does what or models one of the good parts of his story. He simply comes in and says, I have a message for you. And that begins the fight. So you could then argue this is almost defensive, but I think he came in with a sword. He was planning to kill this guy. That's maybe not the way that we're supposed to be doing things as believers. The judges aren't perfect. They're not our role model. Um, So with his left hand, he uses his weakness as a strength. Just a thought. Uh, The world never expects the weak to be strong. They expect us to be weak. And then when we show strength, it surprises them. And Eglon was so surprised that hilt went way in. Um, You can look this if you want, but it's as graphic as it sounds, like the words here are. The, The one piece there is, it says his entrails came out. The Hebrew word there for entrails actually means dirt. So his poop came out, could, could be a natural reaction to being uh, disemboweled. Or disemboweled. Um, it could actually mean, and I think the story would lean this way, um, the, the dirt parshid, um, and by the way, this is the only use of that word in the Old Testament. So it's, there's large conversations about what does it mean. But I think with the story, the sword was this long, it went in, he, he went in past the hill, which means his hand is up in his guts. 
and then his entrails or his dirt comes out, I think it means he poked it from his stomach all the way through to his bowels. He totally lanced this guy, which gives you an image of Phineas. That zeal for the Lord, where my love for the Lord is going to go right through you. And it's going to, if you think of the word of God as a sword, it cuts right through you. And it goes all the way up into the gut, right? So the hilt's all the way in. He's killed violently. This kind of helps to explain verse 24, right? So, uh, and of course, I have to say this. This is really bad humor, okay? But excuse me. In this idea of giving a message from the Lord, a word from God, and it goes all the way through him, he's all in. Eh? Get that? It's another image of like, it doesn't go part way. Did you see that one coming or no? All right. Uh, the, here's the truth. When we see evil for what it is, a fat, life-sucking leech that dominates God's people, God's word can go right through that kind of evil. That kind of evil is an easy fight because everybody can see how unjust Eglon is. Everybody can see how greedy he is. Everybody can see how worthless he is for other people's joy. He has no value in the kingdom. He's just a life-sucking leech. He's Jabba the Hutt, right? And nobody gets upset when Jabba the Hutt gets strangled by Princess Leia. Nobody does because he's a brutal tyrant. He's a nasty thing and he needs to be dealt with. So there's this sick, opulent, overfed, chewing on weird, slimy things. It's gross. There's no honor in this guy. So you take God's word and you let it stick right in his heart. And it might not be pretty when that happens, but you give it to him. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Anyone who believes on him can have eternal life. Right into the gut, all the way in, hand in, all in. Then Ehud went out. This is like an action movie. He's all smooth and he puts on, you know, he takes the wetsuit off and there's a tuxedo underneath. He does his assassination maneuver. He locks the door. That takes a lot of like, his head is calm and collected, right? And Eglon's just reacting and bleeding, right? But he knows what he's doing. He locks the door, which says that there were locks. And I'm thinking, I got to change my image of the ancient world. They were making locks? Really? Yeah, they were. So they lock the door, and then like 007, he hops out the window, jumps down, goes right by the stone idols and out, out of town. So he leaves in this. So to do that, he would have to go down to the ground, cool as a cucumber, and walk past all of these people with, yep, king's good, see you later, have a nice day. He had to totally keep his chill because he's walking past people here. And he's just, you know, going off like his day's business. And I love in 24... When he'd gone out, when his servants came to look, to their surprise, the doors were locked. And they're thinking that the king locked the doors so he could go to the bathroom, which I've learned you need to do that. You need to make sure the door is locked when you go to the bathroom. Or people walk in on you and then they're scarred for life. So they wait until they were embarrassed. Again, really vivid imagery and just great writing. They're standing around feeling a little awkward, like, gosh, he's been doing this for 20 minutes. Like, what's going on with the king? Like, maybe he ate something bad or whatever, so they're knocking, I'm sure. And, but do you really want to knock and annoy a king that's like Jabba the Hutt? Do you really want to get Jabba mad at you? So it's their own fear that makes it so he can't get tended to, right? It's the evil that destroys itself. So they, therefore, they took the key and opened the door, and there was their master dead on the floor. They find him bleeding. It's a really gory image, right? Um, but... Ehud had escaped while they delayed. I just like the, just that 
he snuck away. This would be a great movie scene. They pass beyond the stone images. Note how they make point, a point of the stone images at the end of the story, just like the beginning. This is a spiritual warfare. And that imagery of spiritual warfare, is just we just keep getting those reminders from the Bible. And escape to Sarah. There, Sarah was a really tough word search. It's in southeast East Ephraim. Uh, it means I couldn't find any like connection. or It's just where he went. So it's just a detail of the story. Um, the phrase in verse 24, attending to his needs. <laughs> the Bible knows how to be graceful with things, even when dealing with grisly topics. I don't have that fine art, uh, but the Bible does. Um, and I just thought that was nice. So they waited, they were embarrassed. The word embarrassed there means ashamed. So they feel like as servants, they're missing a beat. Like they're not doing something right. I thought that was an interesting image to get inside the head of those servants a little bit. Uh, the stones there, uh, obviously, I like at the end that they put the stone images out there because it's almost like the stone idols did nothing for the evil people. All those false things they're worshiping are not there to help them when they need it. One person of God can go in and take out a king. That's like a pawn taking a king and the stone images can't do anything to help them. So when you as a believer feel like you're not worthy or good enough or whatnot, think of just... You don't have to worry about that because there's really no power in those things. So um, we see that thing. The details overall in this story are things that we'd call good historicity. So when you look at historical documents, you're looking for those kinds of details that would only be there if something happened. And they're not necessarily trying to create a, a, a legend or a tall tale or anything. So those uh, d details that are here, the timing the places, the locations, the size of the knife, the means of killing, the upper, upper parlor, all matching with historical evidence is what we call historicity. It kind of matches, it rings true, and it works. So the world, word of God never condones the behavior of Ehud. Let's be really clear on that. Assassinating people, assassinating people we don't like is never condoned by this passage, but it's used to justify Jewish political assassinations for hundreds of years. In fact, when we get to Jesus' time, one of his disciples was Simon the Zealot, Luke 6.15. A zealot was somebody who trained to kill Romans. And it's this passage, it's Ehud that justified that behavior. Because if this is how Jewish people should behave when they're oppressed, then why don't we have Jewish assassins? We need more Ehuds. So in their own power and in their flesh, they thought they could take out the Romans through these assassinations. And the Jews did kill Romans. There were whole uprisings, right? But this is the thing that justified that to the Jewish people because for the Jews, this was then condoning that behavior as how you behave as a Jewish person. But under Jesus' teaching at the very same time, he takes Simon the Zealot and turns him into a person of peace. And you're going to use very different things. He has him get, get rid of his knife. He tells Peter to put the knife away. So those actions of the sword are things that Jesus directly taught against. And he said, don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, Matthew 10, 34. So he's teaching that with his words, but then he teaches his servants that the sword he's talking about is the word of God. I came to say that the word of God is what needs to go into your heart. So this is a really key teaching for us as Christians, because we're not Jews. We don't assassinate bad guys even if it's a good movie scene. Jesus never asked his servants for violence, ever. 
he did ask for, for them to not be violent, Matthew 26, 52, for the one with Peter. He gave us the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6, 17, and the word of God, which is two-edged, the be, even a better sword, Hebrews 4, 12. So we have swords that we use, but it's the word of God. So when we fight, let's remind ourselves that that's there. But sometimes you have to get into it with people, in, even in Ehud's case, actually into it with people. Um, and that's not fun. I don't think God calls everybody to be an apologist or to do that. Um, but he does raise up champions that are going to be able to have those kinds of things. Verse 27, and it happened when he arrived, Ehud we're talking about, that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them. And then he said to them, follow me. For the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan, leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. 80 years. That's a long time to not be dominated by another country. Uh, the trumpet is a rallying call to war. I don't need to get into that too much. Uh, the Lord has delivered. Ehud, what makes him a judge is he doesn't take the glory or the credit for himself. He didn't deliver them. The Lord delivered them. And notice that Ehud did not have the spirit of God on him when he did the assassination. So he's moving in his own spirit, but he gives God the credit. He says, follow me. I think this is, if you want to take some good things from Ehud, good military leaders never send men into a battle that they're not willing to go in and fight. Right? It's only in the modern age that we see military leaders staying back in the tent. But throughout most of history, military leaders would actually be in front or lead the charge. David got in trouble when he didn't go out to lead his armies. So this idea of him going out first, him taking that first uh, blow against uh, Eglon, uh, and then he says, follow me, and then people do. A good way to know if you're a leader or not is when you go do things, if people follow you or if they don't. And most people follow folks that are willing to die for them. Right? Does that make sense? Like, I'm not going to follow somebody if they're a selfish jerk or a fat jab of the hut. I don't follow that person unless I'm forced to. But when a godly person leads, they're willing to put themselves at risk before any of the people that he asks to follow them, like Ehud, right? He goes out, puts himself in total risk, goes into the enemy camp, takes out the king, and then he says, come and follow me. I'll go out and do this first, right? At that time implies a season or a period of time. So the 10,000 men all don't die in one day. It happens over this season of conquest of these Moabites taking advantage of them. They get rest for 80 years. That's the longest period of peace we're going to get in the book of Judges. Uh, so you get this story of the impact that a single person can make with Ehud. He's the first one to get into it. And he's just, enough is enough. I'm done with Eglon. I'm done with this domination. I'm not going to do it anymore. And he takes a stand. Judge number three sadly only gets one sentence. And here it is. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also delivered Israel. I only get one sentence on this, so, you know, there's that. There's Shamgar. Um, Shamgar, the word means sword in the Hebrew. He doesn't actually use a sword or have a sword. He is the sword. And so I thought that was kind of cool. It may be that this character, um, there was little known about him at the time. So it could be that when this book is written, when Judges is written, which is probably during the Babylonian exile, 
they're, they know the name of Shamgar so well that they're just saying like, this is when Shamgar showed up. But at this point in Jewish history, he's epic, he's legendary, you know? And not legendary like Paul Bunyan, but as well known as the name Paul Bunyan. Even though most people think Paul Bunyan was a real person, there's been legend that's grown around him. So in Greek histories, you take those legends and you write them down. In Minnesota history, we take Paul Bunyan's legends and we write them down. In biblical history, all he gets is a sentence, but it's assumed that the reader knows who this is. So we don't need all the stuff in there. All we're going to put is what we know about Shamgar. This is when he happened. He delivered Israel. He used an ox goad. An ox goad is not a part of an ox, like a jawbone of a, a, a donkey. It's not like that. An ox goad is a long piece of metal, and at the end of it, you've got like a scraper, so you can get stuff off the heels of the ox, and you can use it like a tool. And the other thing is, if you're going to goad an ox, the other end's a pointy stick, at the other end of the large metal pole, you goad an ox from a distance. So they're usually seven, eight-foot poles that you're going to goad that ox with. Because you want the ox to move, but you really don't want to be close when you do that. Um, so that's an ox goad. You put that on a battlefield, an ox goad is a wicked weapon. You know, a seven-foot pole swinging around is going to hurt some people. So that's the weapon of choice for this guy. Anath, uh, you can see that, Jew, uh, that, that the nation of Israel is falling because Sword is the son of a pagan goddess. Anath is, is one of the pagan gods. She's a Canaanite god. So he's being named after Canaanite, Canaanite gods. Um, or in Shamgar, by the way, is not a Jewish name. It's not a Hebrew name. It's a Canaanite name. Or God used a Canaanite to give relief to the Israelites because there's no good people amongst the Israelites. That's a, a consideration on this. So evil left to its own can actually attack each other. So this is a good thing to do. If you watch the movie Fistful of Dollars with Clint Eastwood, he comes into town and he finds out there's two groups of bad guys in this town. Well, how does a good person fight two groups of bad guys? What he does is he sets it up so the two groups of bad guys think that the other one was doing something bad to the other one and he lets them fight each other and they eat themselves up. And then he walks out with a fistful of dollars. Um, so... This is an interesting thought that what could be going on here is that Shamgar, the son of Anath, killed 600 people, men of the Philistines, but Shamgar then wouldn't have been a Philistine. He would have been a Canaanite. So God raised up somebody from this group of people, beat up the group of this people, and they're not oppressing Israel when that happens. And they get a season of peace and deliver Israel from that stress. So I just... When you really think through this, you're like, well, that's kind of interesting. We get the mention of Philistines here. We've seen them back in Genesis. They're the ones that stole the wells from Isaac. Um, we're going to see them again in Judges 10. We're going to see them a lot. We're getting a precursor on Philistines here. The Philistines become one of the worst groups of people when it comes to Israel getting peace. They're constantly attacking Israel, constantly stealing and taking things. Uh, with the third judge, there's no indication of God's spirit like there was with Othniel just a kill count um, showing how prominent this was and how many people died because of this guy. Um, in Judges uh, 5, 6, we know the roads were pretty deserted here, uh, so travelers wouldn't use them. Uh, so when it says they delivered Israel, it could just be that this guy Shamgar made it, like went out and killed some of these Philistine bandits because what they would do is sit on these traveler trade routes and oppress people. So it could be that Shamgar just went out and started... If he's got an ox goad, that means he's probably working with an ox, which means he's just a laborer. He's just 
He's not like a king or a lord. He's somebody that's working with the oxen. So you've got this kind of average working class person who just has fed up with the Philistines. He uses this eight foot, seven, eight foot long scraper hook thing and he goes and he starts killing people and God uses the simple to defy the powerful. It's another theme we see in the Bible. He uses an ox goad. Moses has a staff. David has a sling. Um, We get uh, Samson with a jawbone. God, you take whatever's in your hand and you can use it for the Lord. And I see this a lot with people that are working on spreading their faith. They're like, yeah, but I don't know all the Bible verses like so-and-so does. And I don't have everything memorized like so-and-so does. Take whatever God's put in your heart. Like if you're here tonight, you have enough to share God's grace with other people. Because you can just say, Sunday night I was learning about Judges 3 and this was a cool thought that I had. And you can share that with people because it's what's in your hand at the moment. And you don't need the whole Bible in your head in order to share your faith. You need to use what's in your hand. So I thought Shamgar was good at doing that. Uh, He's one of what you'd call the minor judges because we don't get a story with him. So there's no story to tell. He just beat up bad guys. We don't even know if he was a good guy or a bad guy. Um, He clearly doesn't have a Hebrew name. Um, But then at the end of this chapter, he also delivered Israel. I think what the writer's trying to say is God can use anybody. And if we won't do it, he'll raise up people to do it. And when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and they said, your people are crying out and praising and you shouldn't have them praising you. And he says, if the people don't praise me, the stones will cry out. God can take a rock and cry praises out to the Lord. And he can take Shamgar and do his work because there's no one left in Israel willing to do it. There's no Jewish, Hebrew, Israelite child of God willing to take a stand. So he uses them to beat each other up. So all of this, just if we remember, a reminder from Hebrews, all of this is for our own learning. And we're, we're looking through judges, not necessarily for role models, but we can see that God is going to work through history despite us. And he'll pick and use anybody if he wants to. So for me, that's a lesson I want to, uh, I want to be used by God and, and be used the way God wants me to be used um, so much that there doesn't have to be a sham guard to do what I'm here to supposedly do. And I just thought that was a neat thought. So let's pray. That's Judges 3. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for um, the detail that you give, the, the graphic details, uh, the heroes that, that rise up to set things right in Jerusalem. Lord, we know you will test your people, but you will not let them perish. You will bend, but you will not break them. So Lord, we take that and we look at how you've treated your people in the past and we just hold to your promises and we hold to what you have. Lord, if you would test us, then test us well. And may we stand up and may we not break under that testing, Lord. May we hold firm and hold fast to your word. Lord, may we do it with joy. I just take every word of your scriptures, Lord. I'm just moved at the care you put into them, the way that you worked through multiple writers to write multiple books, Lord, that are so consistent and so perfectly tied together, Lord, and with one singular thought, and that is to serve you and to show us a path into your glory and your righteousness through Jesus. Lord, we lift you up, we praise your name, and I am so thankful, Lord, for just the the brothers and sisters that are here in this room and that are um, together, Lord, that we can be family uh, as we serve you and we can uh, have that affinity, Lord, and we can um, love one another despite our sin and failings, Lord, so that we can be seeking you in purity each day. Um, Lord, teach us, make us wiser, 
Make us smarter. And Lord, help us to be a glowing light to the people in our life, one of love and peace and welcome and invitation, Lord. And may we just share that with people and do it in your way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.